Welcome to Bible Study, Parody, and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. In the introduction to my book, Subversive Wisdom, Sociopolitical Dimensions of John's Gospel, I offer this story. I had a friend in college who was big. He was huge. He had played offensive line for a college team at another college before he transferred to the one that we were both attending. His two older brothers were even bigger than he was and had played professional football for the old Houston Oilers, a team that existed back in the 20th century. So yeah, this really dates me. Anyway, he told me that his brothers were driving through Georgia one time and they stopped at a restaurant that advertised on the window all the pancakes you can eat for 99 cents. So his brothers went in and ordered the pancakes. Of course, they easily consumed the first stack of pancakes, and then they asked for more. So the waitress brought them a second stack of pancakes, which they polished off without much effort. And then they ordered a third stack. This continued until finally the waitress told them that they couldn't have any more pancakes. When they reminded her that the advertisement read, all the pancakes you can eat for 99 cents, she replied without missing a beat, that is all the pancakes you can eat for 99 cents. The moral of the story? There's always another way to read the text. How we read the text makes all the difference. In previous episodes, we've looked at how Jesus interprets the prophetic and legal texts of ancient Israel differently than the upper or retainer class scribes. We've seen this especially in his debates with them. I've also suggested that Jesus actively, through his work, reinterprets the texts in a way that fulfills them and that changes the world. In this episode, on the remainder of chapter 17, we encounter again a statement by Jesus that reveals that his movement is actively reinterpreting the texts in order to bring about fulfillment and liberation, that they are assuming the roles necessary to fulfill the visions of the prophets and bring about the new society that Jesus calls the kingdom of heaven. We will also see that this reinterpretation goes hand in hand with decolonizing the minds of the people, people whose minds are held captive by the temple system of the empire. Yes, I said the temple system of the empire. The ruling classes of the empire used temples with their priests and sacrificial systems to colonize people's minds. And breaking free of this sort of psychological colonization is not easy. Breaking free of the psychological colonization by systems of domination is never easy, whether in the first century or in the 21st century. My name is Bert Newton. And this is episode 45 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel. Let's begin by reading Matthew 17, 9 to 13. As they were coming down the mountain... Jesus ordered them, Tell no one about the vision until after the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. 
And the disciples asked him, Why then do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? He replied, Elijah is indeed coming and will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them about John the Baptist. As they are coming down the mountain from the transfiguration, Jesus orders the disciples not to tell anyone about the transfiguration until after his resurrection, until after the Son of Man, the human one, has been raised from the dead. This command not to tell anyone continues the theme of apocalyptic secrecy, the subversive underground nature of the movement. The use of the term Son of Man, or the human one, again evokes the Daniel 7 scene of victory over the empires. And resurrection, in apocalyptic and other Jewish literature of the period, is the final victory over the empires. I'll say more about that in a future episode, but you can take a look at Daniel 12 as an example. But Jesus doesn't want an image of victory being proclaimed before the crucifixion because the resurrection only occurs after the cross. The secret of the transfiguration is, for now, only for these three disciples and the audience of the story. Right now, they must take seriously the cross that will come first, and which will be the initial coming in glory of the Son of Man. So the disciples asked Jesus why the scribes say that Elijah must come first. In other words, why do the wise men of the temple state make this claim that the messianic days of liberation cannot arrive until Elijah comes and completes a restoration? This is a reference to Malachi 4, 5-6 and Sirach 45.10. There is an argument against Jesus or his type of activity that they must wait for Elijah. But Jesus says that Elijah already came in John the baptizer, and they killed him. The authorities killed the one they were supposed to be waiting for. So John's restoration was cut short. Now, it was Herod, not the scribes, that killed John the baptizer. But both Herod and the temple establishment, which the scribes are part of, both of them, are client rulers of Rome. They are both part of the imperial system of domination. At minimum, this is a conflict between the teaching or interpretation or policy position of the scribes and that of Jesus' movement for a new society. The scribes believe that certain things have to happen before anything of significance can happen, thereby giving them an excuse not to take action against injustice. In contrast, Jesus and his movement are making the future happen. They are taking on the roles necessary to make the future happen. At minimum, this is a conflict in their teaching and policy positions. But Jesus points out that it's more than a simple conflict. The temple establishment has taken action to keep liberation from moving forward. Yes, 
Elijah comes and will restore all things. In fact, he's already come, and they killed him. Prophecy, like law, is open to interpretation. Interpretation is everything. Those who have the power to interpret hold the power to write the narrative of our common life. They hold the power to shape society. The scribes maintain a static, hard interpretation that assures that no action can be taken to upset the status quo, and they will back it up with lethal force if necessary. Jesus and his movement are asserting their authority to interpret and change the course of history. For them, the messianic days of liberation have arrived. Let's continue with verses 14 to 22. When they came to the crowd, a man came to him, knelt before him, and said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic, and he suffers terribly. He often falls into the fire and often into the water, and I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. Jesus answered, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was cured instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I tell you, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. And they were greatly distressed. The New Revised Standard Version, NRSV, that I just read from, translates the condition of the boy in this passage as epilepsy. The Greek word is seleinaitsetai, from the lexical form seleinaitsomai, and actually means moonstruck. And it is found nowhere else in ancient Greek literature. This word only occurs in Matthew, twice, here and in chapter 4. You can hear the name of the Greco-Roman goddess of the moon, Selene, in the first part of the word, Selenitsomai. Selene was her Greek name, and Matthew is written in Greek, so Matthew's text reflects that. But the Roman name for Selene was Luna. So epilepsy in Latin was lunaticus, from which we get the word lunatic. The reason that all of this is important for us to take note of is that, literarily, we are not dealing, in this passage, with what we today understand to be epilepsy. The author of Matthew is naming a condition understood by his audience to be produced by demons, the minions of Satan, which, as I have mentioned in earlier episodes of this podcast, was understood in Jewish resistance literature of the period to be the spirit behind the Roman Empire. In this case, this demonic possession is somehow tied to the Greco-Roman goddess Selene or Luna. It is a condition of imperial oppression that manifests in certain individuals. The disciples cannot drive it out. 
In response, Jesus proclaims, You faithless and perverse generation, how much longer must I be with you? How much longer must I put up with you? Now, this might not seem so harsh to a Middle Eastern audience, which is used to such hyperbolic expressions of feeling as it does to us. But the salient word to note here is the term generation. I have been making the case in this series that it refers to the spiritual or ideological parentage of the people referred to. They are the children of that generation, the children of the old society. Jesus is inaugurating a new generation, the children of God, which is the kingdom of heaven or the new society. The old generation are those still held captive to the ways of thinking and being of the old society. Their minds are still colonized by the empire. This is just slightly easier to see in the Gospel of John where Jesus tells his opponents that their father is the devil. The devil, Satan, the spirit of empire, is the father of the old generation. In his letter to the church in Rome, Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Jesus is the firstborn of a new generation. This new generation populates the new society. To get into it, people need to transition from the old generation. They need to be reborn through decolonizing their minds. It is through decolonizing their minds that they are reborn into the new society. In this passage, Jesus expresses frustration that his own disciples' minds are still colonized by the old society, still colonized by the empire, which is why they can't cast out the demon. The problem is not that they don't believe enough in demons or demonology. That's a modern problem. Ancient people would have fully believed in demons and that demons could be driven out if one had the right sort of power to do so. Believing in the modern sense of that word is not the problem. The problem is that they are still mentally enslaved to the empire and don't have confidence in themselves to liberate a brother from the effects of imperial colonization. That's why Jesus refers to this generation. He is referring to the old generation of the empire. His disciples are still making the transition out of it. They have not been reborn to use language from the Gospel of John, they have not been reborn into the new society yet because they are so slow to learn. Jesus tells his disciples that they weren't able to cast out the demon due to their little faith and that if they had faith even the size of a mustard seed, they would be able to move mountains. The mention of the mustard seed recalls the mustard seed parable from chapter 13, which was about the subversive strategy of the new society to overthrow the old society by spreading through it like an invasive shrub spreading through a garden. Now, keep in mind that temples were a primary institution through which the ruling classes psychologically controlled the people even people who were not able to participate in the temple activities. The idea of moving a mountain is one that will come up again in chapter 21, right after he enters Jerusalem as a triumphant peasant king 
and shuts down the sacrificial economy at the temple. Several scholars have made a good case that in that scene, the mountain being referred to is the Temple Mount, the seat of the Roman puppet government in Jerusalem, and that the teaching is about the overthrow of the Temple State. The Gospel of Mark, from which Matthew gets a lot of its material, only mentions the moving or uprooting of the mountain when Jesus gets to Jerusalem. Matthew, which often doubles or triples up on sayings and teachings of Jesus, has this teaching here at this earlier point as well. The inclusion of the teaching at this point in the story in Matthew seems to be related to the anti-temple teaching of the Transfiguration, which I covered in the last episode, in which Peter's suggestion to build three tabernacles, i.e. proto-temples, on the mountain is interrupted by the voice from the cloud, which instructs the disciples to listen to Jesus, the implication being that what they need is Jesus' teaching, not temples. Jesus tells them that if they have faith, they can move mountains. They can do anything. But in case they take that too literally, the next thing Jesus says brings them down to earth. The very next thing Jesus says has to do with how he will be victorious over the temple system, which is through his death and resurrection. He says, the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised. Then the text tells us that the disciples are deeply distressed. This ain't no name-it-and-claim-it prosperity gospel. It's about the movement's ability to triumph over the temple system by embracing martyrdom rather than fearing the imperial forces of death. Interestingly, the next passage, which is the last passage in this chapter, involves the temple in Jerusalem. Let's read verse 24 to the end of the chapter. When they reached Capernaum, the collectors of the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? He said, Yes, he does. And when he came home, Jesus spoke of it first, asking, What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tribute? From their children or from others? When Peter said, From others, Jesus said to him, Then the children are free. However, so that we do not give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook. Take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a coin. Take that and give it to them for you and for me. Many translations, such as the NRSV, New Revised Standard Version, which I just read, correctly, but not literally, translate the tax as the temple tax. The actual Greek word used to describe the tax is didrachma, meaning two drachma. A drachma was the unit of currency. It was a special two drachma tax levied to support the temple in Jerusalem during the time of Jesus. But during the time of the writing of Matthew, after the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, the tax was still being levied by Rome. Only at that point, it went to support the temple to Saturn in Rome. So the original late first century audience of this story hears this as a story about a temple tax that was at one time levied for the temple in Jerusalem, but now is levied for a temple in Rome. It's a temple tax. 
It once supported the Roman puppet government at the temple in Jerusalem, and now it goes directly to a temple in Rome. I should note that in my interview with Dr. James Fair, he covers this passage, so if you haven't listened to that interview, this might be a good reason to do so. My interpretation closely aligns with the one he suggests in the interview, but does not include all the information that he provides in that interview. So Peter tells the tax collectors that Jesus pays this tax. Is Peter telling the truth or is he lying? It's hard to know. When he gets home, they are in Capernaum where Peter and Jesus are from, so they probably have family there. This is their home. When he gets home, Jesus takes him aside and talks about this tax. Some modern readers might assume that the point that Jesus is making is that they are children of the king, meaning God, and so they shouldn't have to pay the tax, but they will do it just so as not to offend anyone. Well, that may be sort of true, but it skips over a fundamental reality that Jesus is highlighting. By reminding Peter that the children of the kings of the earth don't pay taxes, He's reminding him of the situation that they live in. Roman citizens at that time did not pay taxes. Rome only levied taxes against subjects in the subjugated lands of the empire. Jesus is stating a fundamental injustice in the tax, which may not be apparent to Peter since in the days of Peter and Jesus, it went to the temple in Jerusalem, which was ostensibly an Israelite government institution. But the late first century audience of Matthew definitely knows full well that it is a tax that goes to Rome. Jesus is merely reminding Peter and the audience that even in their day, it's still being levied by the empire. The temple in Jerusalem is controlled by Rome and is effectively a Roman puppet government. He may be implying as well that they are children of the true king, but that would be a secondary implication. There is no mention of the king of heaven, only of the kings of the earth. Then Jesus sends him to pull a four drachma coin. That's the meaning of the actual Greek word being used here. A four drachma coin out of the mouth of a fish to pay the tax. The irony is that the Roman emperor claims ownership of the fish of the sea. As you may recall from earlier episodes of this podcast, peasant fishermen had to pay the emperor for the fish that they caught before being able to sell them. Also, Capernaum, where they are, is on the lake that we know, thanks to three of the New Testament Gospels, including Matthew, we know this lake as the Sea of Galilee. Referring to this lake as a sea, as Matthew continues to do here, evokes the imperial setting because as I've said many times in this podcast series, the sea is the place where empires come from, both in the literature and in the history of ancient Israel. The Roman emperor claimed ownership of the sea and all that was in it. Matthew scholar Warren Carter states that Rome's boosters even maintained that the emperor's numen, or genus, his personal power, influenced not only people but also birds, animals, and fish to recognize him as master and worship him.
Carter cites one late first century Roman poet, Marcus Valerius Martialis, who mentions fish wanting to lick the hand of Emperor Domitian. Carter cites another late first century Roman writer, Juvenal, satirically writing about a large fish wishing to be caught so that it would be given to Emperor Domitian since, quote, every rare and beautiful thing in the wide ocean belongs to the imperial treasury. But Jesus has twice in Matthew exercised his power and authority over the sea, even subduing it under his feet in chapter 14. And in this passage, the fish obey him, not the emperor. And just as the Roman satirist Juvenal makes fun of Emperor Domitian's claim to own and control all the fish of the sea, the author of Matthew provides us with a clever and funny ending to this scene. Jesus tells Peter to pay the Roman tax by taking it from the fish that the Roman emperor thinks he owns. Roman propaganda and the Gospel of Matthew understand and interpret the world in opposite ways. The Gospel of Matthew offers us a story of a peasant Messiah who nonviolently and cleverly undermines the authority of Rome to establish a society of justice for everyone. My name is Bert Newton. The music for this episode has been provided by Bob Nolte and David Martin. Please spread the word about our podcast to everyone you can and give us five-star ratings and glowing reviews wherever you are able. If you want to send questions or comments or encouraging words, you can send them to subversivewisdom at gmail.com. You can also use that address to support the show financially through PayPal. Send it to subversivewisdom at gmail.com through PayPal. Thanks to everyone who has supported this podcast series, whether financially or by spreading the word or just by listening. Your support means a lot. This has been episode 45 of Bible Study, Parody and Subversion in Matthew's Gospel.